This video is for educational and infotainment purposes only. It is not intended to encourage or glorify the use of illegal drugs, violence, or criminal activity in any way. Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo, which means shorty, stands only five feet six inches tall. However, he built one of the biggest crime syndicates in the history of the world. In fact, at one point in time, the DEA crowned him the most powerful drug trafficker in the world, with an estimated net worth in the billions. And he is one of only a handful of people in the world that can say that they have escaped from a maximum security prison. Not once, but twice. So how did he do it and what finally brought him down? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to look at the history of El Chapo updated to 2023. Now, I already have a full-length feature video on the man that focuses really pretty narrowly on his life and times. In this video, we're going to take a much broader view of the entire narco landscape as it has evolved over the years and how El Chapo fits into the history of the Mexican drug trade and its evolution into the drug wars that exist today. So the focus is of course on El Chapo, but we will also be taking a look at all of the major players in and around the Mexican drug trade almost all of whom have their own full-length video dedicated to them on this channel. And as with all of my videos, I share them because I love these narco stories. So there is no disrespect intended with any of my comments. Also, I have to beg your forgiveness up front because my Spanish is not good. I'm getting better, but it's still subpar. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the video. If you do, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a question, put it in the comment section below. And if you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Stop and hit that subscribe button right now. Joaquin Archivaldo Guzman Loera, known as El Rapido, but to most of the world, he is known as El Chapo. He was born in 1957 in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Specifically, he was born about 50 miles north of its capital, Culiacan, near the city of Badiraguato. It is a little town of about 3,500, but it is the hometown of a bunch of famous drug lords. The general area is responsible for producing Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Don Neto, Rafael Caro Quintero, Rafa, his brother Miguel, El Azul, the Beltran Leva brothers, and Pedro Aviles Perez. That is a bunch of big cartel names from a very little town. As a child, sources say that Chapo was well-liked with a great sense of humor and that he would sell oranges to help support the family. He was very close to his mother. 
Now, the nearest school was 60 miles away, so while he would learn from traveling teachers who would visit the town from time to time, El Chapo grew up functionally illiterate. El Chapo's father, Emilio, was officially a cattle rancher, but unofficially they cultivated and sold marijuana and opium poppy. During harvest time, El Chapo and his brothers would hike into the hills and collect the product. Now, Emilio would take the contraband into the commercial areas and sell it. The problem was that he would then spend the profits on alcohol and women, often returning home with nothing. And in addition to being a womanizing drunk, accounts were that El Chapo's father was physically abusive to his wife and kids. Well, El Chapo had had his fill of this behavior by age 15, when he moved in with his grandfather and started his own marijuana production business in conjunction with several of the Beltran Leva brothers. And over the next few years, they basically created their own little plaza. By age 20, he had caught the eye of a big-time drug trafficker, Pedro Aviles Perez, a.k.a. Don Pedro. And if you know anything about the history of Mexican drug cartels, it all starts with Don Pedro. He was also known as El Leon de la Sierra, or the Lion of the Sierras, referring to the Sierra Madre mountain range in Mexico, wherein he lived and worked. Don Pedro became the first major Mexican drug lord beginning in the late 60s and is considered to be in the first generation of Mexican drug smugglers. Future legendary traffickers like Felix Gallardo, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, would say that they learned the drug trade from Don Pedro. So El Chapo joins Don Pedro's ranks and starts working with Hector Palma. Chapo's job was to oversee and move product from various locations in Sinaloa up to locations along the United States-Mexican border. And he was ruthless. If a smuggler was late, Chapo just shot him. So he developed quite a reputation, and his bosses loved it. So at this time, there were several drug trafficking organizations, or plazas as they were called in Mexico. And a guy by the name of Felix Gallardo had the novel idea that instead of fighting with one another and killing each other, that they should work together and form a monopoly. And while some of the plaza bosses were on board, not everybody liked the idea. And that's when things started going sideways with Don Pedro's organization. Info from both the United States and Mexican authorities would later reveal that there was a power struggle that was emerging between Don Pedro and Felix Gallardo. We know that just prior to Don Pedro's death in 1978, there was a meeting of the leaders of the various plazas. Gallardo wanted to establish one large group of all the major drug traffickers. Aviles didn't really see the need and took particular offense when one of his plaza rivals credited Gallardo for bringing all of the parties together. Regardless, shortly after this meeting, Don Pedro is killed, and to this day, much mystery surrounds how his death went down. It's beyond the scope of this video, but if you are interested in examining all of the different versions and theories of how he was killed, check out my full-length video on this channel. With the death of Don Pedro, Felix Gallardo, Ernesto Fonseco Carrillo, Don Neto, and Rafael Caro Quintero Rafa would take over the organization's leadership. 
And pursuant to the earlier meeting, they coordinated all of the various plazas, their production and operations, and formed the core of what became known as the Guadalajara Cartel. And this group took sling and dope to the next level. First, they started producing high-quality seedless marijuana called Sinsamilla. They produced it in mass quantities from large, and I mean large, multi-acre fields. And really, nobody in history had produced marijuana on this scale before. It was also about this time, which is the early 80s, that the Colombian drug cartels were shoveling massive amounts of cocaine into the United States. DEA efforts were focused primarily on Florida, which was the major shipping destination. So, to avoid law enforcement scrutiny in Florida, the Colombian cartels began to utilize Mexico as a transshipment point. And so, by the mid-80s, El Chapo and the Guadalajara cartel were working with someone you may have heard of, one Pablo Escobar and the Medellin drug cartel. Chapo would assist with trafficking boatloads of cocaine from Colombia to Mexico and then up to the United States border where Hector Palma, his partner, specialized in getting the drugs across the border. Drug trafficking in the 80s was dominated by the Guadalajara cartel who saw future legendary traffickers like El Chapo and a guy by the name of Ismael Zambada Garcia, El Mayo, moving up in the organization. And life was good with the Guadalajara cartel, really good. They were kings and had acquired hundreds of houses and ranches and were estimated to be worth over a billion dollars. And by unifying the plazas, the Guadalajara cartel was able to protect their trade primarily with money and bribes rather than bullets, as much of what they were doing was being protected by local law enforcement, politicians, and the United States CIA, who was using the Mexican drug trade to secretly fund Ronald Reagan's war against communism in Nicaragua, which was a big deal, especially after the Iran-Contra scandal blew up, because it became the only way that Contras were receiving financial support. However, not everybody in law enforcement was on board. The United States DEA and the Mexican military were still seeking to bust drug traffickers. So in November of 1984, acting on information provided in part by U.S. DEA agent Kiki Camarena, 450 Mexican soldiers backed by helicopters conducted Operation Godfather, and they destroyed a 2,500-acre marijuana plantation known as Rancho Buffalo in Chihuahua, and it had an estimated annual production in the billions of dollars. This was an unbelievable blow to the Guadalajara cartel and to the U.S.'s ability through the CIA to fund ongoing operations of the Contras in Nicaragua. And this was the second field that was busted by information from Kiki. So he became quite the problem. The DEA says that by January of 1985, Kiki was extremely close to unlocking a multi-billion dollar drug pipeline involving the CIA, Mexican government officials, politicians, local police, and the Guadalajara cartel. So needless to say, certain members of the GC were making preparations to deal with these meddlers. And on February 7th of 1985, U.S. DEA agent Kiki Camarena was abducted in broad daylight. Kiki was surrounded by five armed men, Jalisco police officers on the cartel's payroll, 
who threw him into a car. Camarena was then taken to a cartel mansion at 881 Lopa de Vega Drive in western Guadalajara. It's disputed, but many say that this property was owned by Rafa at the time. There, Kiki was beaten, tortured, and interrogated over a 30-hour period. Ultimately, Camarena's body was found almost a month later, wrapped in plastic and ditched next to a ranch in Michoacan. It is a fascinating story with complicity of the United States CIA, but the specifics are beyond the scope of this video. So if you are interested, the entire story of Kiki Camarena is also available on this channel. Camarena's torture and murder prompted a swift reaction from the US DEA, which launched Operation Leyenda or Legend, the largest DEA homicide investigation ever undertaken with the three leaders of the GC as the primary suspects. Rafa would flee Mexico and seek refuge in Costa Rica, but his freedom would last less than 60 days after a girlfriend's call home was traced by authorities. Don Neto would be arrested three days later in Puerto Vallarta by the Mexican army when his villa was surrounded and he surrendered. And while the Mexican officials were fairly quickly able to apprehend Rafa and Donetto, Felix Gallardo was able to evade arrest for another four years. But on April 8th of 1989, the last of the Guadalajara cartel founders were taken into custody. So with the big three behind bars, the GC decided that it would be more efficient and less likely to be disrupted by law enforcement if they diversified. So in a meeting set up by Gallardo's lawyer, several of the top narcos in Mexico met in 1989 at a house in Acapulco where they divided up the territories. The Tijuana route would go to Gallardo's nephews, the Ariano Felix brothers. The Juarez route would stay with the Carrillo Fuentes family, namely Amado, and that is Don Neto's bunch. Miguel Caro Quintero would run the Sonora Corridor, that being Rafa's family, while Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo, and Hector Luis Palma were left the Sinaloa and the Pacific Coast operations, with El Mayo eventually joining them. Specifically, El Chapo utilized the drug corridors and border crossings at Tijuana, Tecate, Mexicali, and San Luis, Rio, Colorado, which if you are not familiar with the Mexican side of the border, that basically runs between San Diego, California, and Yuma, Arizona. This was also the area that the Tijuana cartel was operating in, so remember that for later. So it's 1989, and we have a whole new way of doing business in narco world with the subdivision of the Guadalajara cartel. The GC had trafficked most of their drugs overland through mules. They also did airdrops in desert areas, and El Chapo, he would do the same thing, but he also built a sophisticated tunnel system from Mexico right under the border and right into the United States through which he moved millions of dollars of drugs. And these were sophisticated tunnels. They were deep. They had electricity, lighting, often ventilated. Some of them even had rails from which a motorized vehicle could transport contraband and personnel. He also packaged cocaine in jalapeno pepper cans under the brand name La Comadre and transfer them into the United States via train in plain sight. And they made lots of money. One of the casualties of the arrest of the primary operatives of the Guadalajara cartel is that they forfeited a lot of their property and ranches. 
In order to avoid such a consequence in the future, El Chapo would put property he acquired in the names of other trusted individuals. And while Guzman would acquire several ranches all across Mexico, most of them were located in the states of Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, and Sonora, where locals working for the drug lord would grow opium and marijuana. Chapo also bought a lot of houses in neighborhoods which served as stash houses for his operations. And almost immediately, Guzman would be indicted by U.S. authorities for his involvement in organized crime when several protected witnesses testified in a U.S. court that he was in fact heading what would become known as the Sinaloa Cartel. One indictment that was issued in the state of Arizona in 1990 alleged that Guzman had coordinated the shipment of 4,400 pounds of marijuana and 10,400 pounds of cocaine, which seemed like a lot, except that another indictment said that he had trafficked over 70,000 pounds of cocaine. They were being paid through large suitcases filled with millions of dollars in cash that were flown from the United States to Mexico City, where corrupt customs agents at the airport made sure that deliveries were not inspected. And simply put, the Sinaloa cartel was just trafficking better than everybody else. They were moving a lot more dope. And because of their logistics superiority, they were getting a much larger slice of the money pie than the other cartels. So there began to fester some envy and some anger with the other groups, especially the Tijuana cartel. And so this was really the end of the era where money and bribes were used to protect drug cartels. And it's really when things started to bend towards the violence that we see in the Mexican drug trade today. The Tijuana cartel would get the violence ball a-rolling by executing Armando Lopez, who was one of El Chapo's right-hand men. Uh, Lopez, who was known as El Raju, had been sent to Tijuana by El Chapo to discuss a dispute that they were having regarding money that was supposedly owed to the cartel for using the Tijuana corridor to traffic. But before he could get to the face-to-face -face meeting with Tijuana cartel leaders, he showed up drunk and acted a fool at a wedding reception and got shot by Ramon Ariano Felix. And while El Chapo did not like it, he didn't respond immediately because by all accounts, Raju was heckling the bride at her own wedding. But then the Ariano Felix brothers hired a Venezuelan drug dealer slash hitman to go after El Chapo's longtime partner, Hector Palma. He would steal $7 million, kill Palma's wife and two children, which was bad enough. But then the Tijuana cartel operatives kidnapped, tortured, and executed six Sinaloa men. And at that point, it was on. El Chapo struck back in September of 1992 by killing nine members of the Tijuana cartel. He would then pay authorities an estimated $10 million not to solve the crime. Two months later, the Tijuana cartel tried to assassinate El Chapo in Guadalajara by firing at a car he was riding in. A week later, El Chapo and Palma returned the favor by having Sinaloa cartel men posing as police officers storm the Christine discotheque in Puerto Vallarta that was frequented by the Tijuana cartel. The men spotted Ramon and his crew and opened fire. 
The firefight lasted for eight minutes with more than 1,000 rounds fired by the Sinaloa and Tijuana gunmen. In the end, six people were killed in the shootout, but the Ariano Felix brothers escaped through an air conditioning duct and fled the scene in their vehicles. And from there, there were several minor skirmishes between the two cartels until May 24th of 1993, when the Tijuana cartel got a tip that El Chapo was at the Guadalajara airport. So at 4.10 p.m., 20 gunmen descend upon a white Mercury Grand Marquis and filled it full of rounds. When the dust settled, seven were dead, but not El Chapo. While he was in the parking lot at the airport at the time, he was in a green Buick a short distance away. So who was in the Grand Marquis? Well, that was Cardinal and Archbishop Juan Jesus Posado Socampo. Whoops. The incident outraged the Mexican police, politicians, Catholic Church, and the public in general. In response, the government launched a massive manhunt and offered a multi-million dollar bounty on those involved. And although he was technically a victim in the attack scheme, El Chapo's picture was plastered across every newspaper and TV in Mexico. This transformed him from being an otherwise obscure criminal to being a household name in all of North America. Exposed in Mexico, El Chapo would reportedly transfer $400 million to Sinaloa operatives, obtain a passport with the fake name of Jorge Ramos Perez, and bounce across the border into Guatemala. But he was ultimately arrested a short time later on June 9th of 1993. El Chapo would be extradited back to Mexico, where he was charged and convicted of drug trafficking and sentenced to 20 years. End of story, right? Haha, <laughs> not even close. Today's first shout-out is to our presenting sponsor, Skillshare, the online learning community with instructional videos from industry leaders on just about any topic you can imagine. These are how-to videos focused on completing a specific project rather than just general information. It's practical learning on topics of your choice at your pace. Skillshare. Check out the link in the description below for your one-month free trial. Although Chapo was now in prison, the Sinaloa cartel continued to operate as his brother, Arturo Guzman, would step in and assume a leadership role along with Hector Palma and El Mayo. That continued until Palma was arrested in 1995 by the Mexican army, and then Arturo and El Mayo headed up the cartel until Big Brother, El Chapo, could return to his post. During this time, El Chapo was still heavily involved. He had access to lots of cash, so he was able to maintain a fairly lavish lifestyle for an inmate. This was also when he met Zolima Hernandez, who was in prison for armed robbery and who would become his longtime mistress. Now, her body would ultimately be found in the trunk of a car in 2008 carved with multiple Zs, signifying Losetas, the Sinaloa cartel's biggest rival at that time. But that wouldn't be for several years. Anyway, the Sinaloa cartel at the time of his arrest was the wealthiest and the most powerful of all of Mexico's drug cartels. Even though El Chapo was in prison, he still had most of the guards on his payroll to make sure that he received preferential treatment. And on January 19th of 2001, in a group effort, 
orchestrated and paid for on the outside by the Sinaloa cartel and internally through corrupt corrections officials. Francisco El Chito Camberos Rivera, a prison guard, opened Chapo's electronically operated cell door, loaded him into a laundry cart that maintenance worker Javier Camberos rolled through several doors and eventually right out of the front door of the prison. Chapo was then transported in the trunk of the car driven by Camberos out of town. When they stopped at a petrol station, Chapo jumped out of the trunk, took off to the meeting point where he was picked up by a helicopter and he was gone, escaped. In total, 78 people were implicated in the escape plan, including the local police in Jalisco and the prison facility director, who is now in prison himself for aiding in this escape. And within a couple of days, El Chapo is back in charge of the Sinaloa cartel. One of the first things that he did was to expand their market. Now, the Sinaloa cartel was originally in the cocaine, marijuana, and heroin business while the Colima cartel and the Amezqua brothers had a stranglehold on the meth business in Mexico. That was until their arrest in 1999. With them gone, El Chapo could easily step into the meth business. And up until this point, the Sinaloa cartel had been a joint venture between El Chapo and El Mayo, but the methamphetamine business would be Guzman's alone, assisted by his brother Arturo, at least until he was arrested and then murdered in prison in 2004. Chapo would cultivate his own ties to China, Thailand, and India to import the necessary precursor chemicals. He then constructed large methamphetamine laboratories hidden throughout the mountains of the states of Sinaloa, Durango, Jalisco, and Michoacan. El Chapo already had the infrastructure, the men, and the distributors to move the meth. So with this new additional product, he could rapidly expand the organization. Then El Chapo turned supervision of the entire meth operation over to Coronel Nacho Villarreal, a.k.a. the Crystal King. And while Nacho was ultimately killed in 2010 in Jalisco after a shootout with the Mexican army, in those 10 years or so, he firmly established the Sinaloa cartel as a major worldwide player in the meth game. And this was a pretty big deal because by now Pablo Escobar was dead and the Medellin and Cali cartels decimated and that cocaine supply from South America had dried up considerably. Interestingly, while the Sinaloa cartel had always controlled border crossings in California and Arizona, once El Chapo was back in command, he wanted to access crossings in Texas as well. But that was under the control of the Juarez cartel. And it took some negotiating, but with the help of El Mayo, whom was well respected by both sides, the two cartels actually reached an agreement to share the U.S. crossing point at El Paso and that was in the border town of Juarez, Chihuahua. And so a non-aggression pact between the cartels was reached, and they were able to coexist in relative peace. And so a non-aggression pact between the cartels was reached, and they were able to coexist in relative peace. Well, that was until September 11th of 2004, when the leader of the Juarez cartel, Rodolfo Carrillo Fuentes, happened to be about a thousand miles south of his home shopping with his family in the city of Culiacan, Sinaloa, El Chapo's stomping grounds. 
and apparently knocking off a rival cartel boss and potentially seizing the Juarez border crossing all for himself was just too big a temptation to resist. Because El Chapo allegedly ordered the assassination of Roldofo that was carried out by members of Los Negros, which was the armed wing of the Sinaloa cartel at that time. This was, of course, a breach of the non-aggression pact, and it set in motion a bloody battle between the cartels that continues, well, to this day, really. And the sparring was particularly intense in the two years that followed. Lots of brutal murders, decapitations, nasty stuff, including the retaliatory assassination of Chapo's brother, Arturo, who was shot and killed by Juarez operatives in 2004. Over the next couple of years, the Mexican government would have enough of these cartel squabbles and they would bring in the military to stem the violence. They would make over 50,000 arrests of cartel operatives. Interestingly, even though it was the largest cartel, only about 2% of those arrested were Sinaloa, which led to accusations in the media that the government was protecting El Chapo and his group. And although the government denied the allegations, their crackdown against rival cartels actually led to the expansion of Sinaloa territories. In addition, another well-known technique that El Chapo used against his competition was to provide information to law enforcement so that they could bust rival drug cartels, specifically disclosing the locations of their drug refineries and labs. This hit them where it really hurt. El Chapo's tips effectively led to the entire dismantling of the Tijuana cartel's labs, and it was widely speculated that El Chapo made a deal with the DEA where he intentionally gave up some of his own cartel leaders, including Alfredo Beltran Leva and 11 of his hit squad members. That was in exchange for continued operations free from arrest. Well, that obviously didn't sit too well with the other Beltran Leva brothers, who were also lieutenants in the Sinaloa cartel. So they broke off and they started their own syndicate in 2008. And what followed that split was a bloody exchange between the Beltran Leva boys and the Sinaloa cartel, which included the assassination of Edgar Guzman, El Chapo's son, on May 8th of 2008 in Culiacan. Then over the span of the next three months, almost 400 people were killed in this cartel spat. Ultimately realizing they needed more firepower, the Beltran Leva brothers would align with the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas, its hit squad, to form a more powerful group to battle the Sinaloa. And that association would become powerful enough to officially be recognized by the United States government as the Beltran Leva cartel. During this time on the lam, Chapo primarily hid out in the Sierra Madre Mountains in the Triangulo Dorado, or the Golden Triangle region of Mexico, between Sinaloa, Durango, and Chihuahua. And there were lots of hideouts and caves in these mountains, which provided cover for heroin, cocaine, and meth labs. El Chapo was rumored to have a personal security team of over 300 men, who would move between a network of ranches that were in the region. These ranches were very remote and only accessible by long, single-track dirt roads, and you could see somebody coming a mile away. The Sinaloa also had a network of ATVs, armored vehicles, and aircraft to easily escape any incoming foe. 
And of course, during this time, El Chapo's legend only grew in narco folklore as people told stories of his entourage rolling into town and going into a restaurant where the bodyguards would confiscate all the cell phones. Then they would eat the meal, pay everybody's tab, return their phones, and disappear. As he did this more and more frequently, it would be El Chapo's overconfidence that betrayed him. After attending a family reunion in Sinaloa, bodyguards were followed by the authorities that were able to track him down. And on February 22nd of 2014, he was arrested at a beachfront hotel in Mazatlan, where he was visiting his then-wife, Emma Coronel, and his two twin daughters. He was taken into custody after a brief struggle with no shots fired. He had been on the lam for 13 years. So El Chapo was headed back to prison. Mexican President Enrique Pina Nieto and the United States celebrated the joint operation between the Mexican Navy, the DEA, and the United States Marshals that had captured Mexico's number one most wanted criminal. This time, El Chapo was put in solitary confinement in a highly restricted cell where he stayed for 23 hours a day. He was under 24-7 security camera surveillance in every area of his cell except for the shower. And this time, the judge limited him to only enough money to buy personal hygiene products. This was presumably so that he wouldn't be able to bribe corrections officials. El Chapo faced charges in several Mexican and United States courts for murder, kidnapping, torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, you name it, he was indicted for it. In one indictment, it was alleged that he had laundered over $14 billion in drug proceeds. U.S. officials would seek immediate extradition with El Chapo's lawyers fighting with all of their might to resist it. And it was a great big legal mess. Ultimately, in January of 2015, the attorney general in Mexico would say that El Chapo was not going to the United States until he had been tried in Mexico and, if convicted, served all of his time, which he estimated would be between 300 and 400 years. And so that's where things stood until January 11 of 2015. It was on that day when the corrections official who was monitoring El Chapo's camera feed noted that he entered the shower area but had not exited in over 25 minutes. So guards were dispatched to investigate and what they found when they arrived at his cell was a great big hole in the shower floor and a ladder descending into the depths, but no El Chapo. Our second shout out is to another sponsor, Liquid IV, the electrolyte drink mix that delivers hydration to your cells faster than just drinking water alone. This hydration and energy multiplier is way better than Gatorade. Make your water work harder. Give it a try. The link to order is in the description below and you receive 20% off your order with discount code Joshua underscore Roberts. Try it today. So here's how El Chapo escaped the second time. There was a tunnel that was chiseled out 33 feet underground. It spanned right at a mile to a house that was under construction nearby. The tunnel was five feet, seven inches tall and two and a half feet wide. It had lighting, air ducts, and a motorcycle on rails for a fast getaway. Upon discovery of the escape, officials immediately sounded the alarm, which started another worldwide manhunt. 
Interpol was notified. Mexican airports were put on lockdown, and a multi-million dollar bounty was put on El Chapo's head. This was obviously pretty embarrassing for Mexico's government because they had now lost track of El Chapo twice, and it seriously called into question the Mexican government's ability to ever bring El Chapo to justice. But what the government did next was very smart. They got in touch with the law enforcement team in Colombia that had caught Pablo Escobar and dismantled the Medellin cartel. And they developed a similar search block organization that was specifically dedicated to tracking down El Chapo. Then what happened next has to be categorized in the truth is stranger than fiction category. So El Chapo, back with the Sinaloa cartel, reaches out to Mexican actress Kate de Castillo, telling her that he would like to do a Hollywood film about his life. She agrees, and she gets in touch with American actor Sean Penn. Yeah, the one that was married to Madonna. And they all agree that they will do an interview of El Chapo. So on October 2nd of 2015, de Castillo and Penn take a chartered plane to location A, where they switch planes into one of El Chapo's light planes that can fly under the radar. They then fly to location B, after which they are transported by vehicle in the dark of night to a mountaintop location in the Sierra Madres, where they conduct the interview that would later be published in the Rolling Stone magazine. And that's where El Chapo would tell his story, including that he, quote, supplied more heroin, meth, cocaine, and marijuana than anybody else in the world. End quote. Now, it's hotly disputed as to whether this meeting actually led authorities to El Chapo's hidden location. We know that their communications were being monitored by the NSA and the DEA. Some argue that it wasn't until they all got together that authorities could actually pinpoint Chapo's location. Now, law enforcement, they deny this. They say they already knew where he was hiding out. Regardless, the Mexican Marines descended upon El Chapo at a ranch in Durango within two weeks of this meeting. They were met with heavy gunfire as El Chapo fled on foot, carrying a child with him as he ran, obscuring him as a target. Authorities decided not to shoot because they could have hit the little girl, and he got away again. So El Chapo's whereabouts remained unknown for another couple of months until some neighbors complained about a house in northern Sinaloa that was full of armed people. After confirming it was likely where El Mayo was hiding out, the Mexican special forces hit the house in Operation Black Swan on January 8th of 2016. During this raid, five people were killed, six arrested, and one Marine wounded. And guess what they found? Another escape tunnel. It led from under the house and popped up about a mile away. So after emerging from the tunnel, El Chapo and a bodyguard stole a car at gunpoint and took off. What they didn't do was kill the driver or take his cell phone. So he immediately reported the car stolen. A statewide alert was issued on the vehicle and it was intercepted about 20 miles away. At first, El Chapo attempted to bribe the four officers with cash, but when the offer was refused, he summoned his hit squad to the location and told the officers they were all going to die. The officers would quickly relocate to a hotel on the edge of town and wait for reinforcements, and luckily for them, the Mexican Marines found them before the Sinaloa Death Squad did. 
And on January 8th of 2016, El Chapo was once again back in custody. This stint of freedom lasting only about six months. Again, Mexico and the world celebrated. Legal proceedings started up, and this time the Mexican officials were on board to let El Chapo be extradited to the United States. You guys see if you can hold him. It took a year, but in January of 2017, El Chapo was extradited to the U.S. on the explicit guarantee that he would not be sentenced to death. He would be tried in a New York federal court over the span of about two and a half months and found guilty on all charges. And on July 17th of 2019, El Chapo was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years and ordered to forfeit $12.6 billion. El Chapo is currently serving out his sentence at the ADX Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. This is the nation's new Alcatraz, and it is considered one of the most secure prisons in the world. Inmates are housed in solitary confinement 23 hours a day, and they are under 24-7 surveillance. These cells are 7 feet by 12 feet and made with poured reinforced concrete on all sides, with only a bed, desk, toilet, sink, and shower in them. Some of the more notable inmates currently in the prison include Bombers Row, which consists of Terry Nichols from the Oklahoma City bombing, Eric Rudolph from the Olympic Park bombing during the 96 games in Atlanta, and of course, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. The prison also holds all of the major foreign and domestic terrorists that are in custody, many of whom served Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and that is also where El Chapo is today. As for the Sinaloa cartel, it's presently rumored to be led by El Mayo and three of El Chapo's sons who are collectively known as Los Chapitos. Although there are rumors of bad blood between El Mayo and Los Chapitos, especially after El Mayo declined to intervene into a conflict where the Mexican National Guard was attempting to arrest one of the sons, Ovidio, in the Battle of Culiacan, as it is referred to. If you are interested in that story, you can learn all about it in my video on El Mayo on this channel. So where does that leave the Mexican drug cartels today? Well, trying to explain the current state of the Mexican drug war is very difficult. Since the Guadalajara cartel disbanded, there have been over 50 cartels or mini cartels or hit squads to emerge and fade within Mexico. Territories are constantly changing. Allegiances are constantly changing. Cartel groups who are friends one day are sworn enemies the next. It's extremely fluid. When the DEA released its most recent national drug threat assessment in 2020, the report identified five major Mexican drug cartels with the biggest impact on the United States. Number one was, of course, the Sinaloa cartel. Even after El Chapo's arrest and its internal struggles, the Sinaloa cartel is still considered the wealthiest and most powerful Mexican drug cartel. Its biggest rival is the Jalisco New Generation cartel, the CJNG, led by El Mencho, a group based in Guadalajara. It is considered to be, quote, one of the most powerful and fastest growing cartels in Mexico and the United States and is characterized by extreme violence. The Sinaloa cartel also spends a great deal of time fighting with the Juarez cartel, which, as you know, has been embroiled in a turf war with the Sinaloa for years. Aside from those cartels, there is the Gulf cartel, which has been around forever, although it has split into multiple factions over the years. 
it spends most of its time these days fighting with Los Zetas, which formed an independent cartel when it split off from the Gulf in 2010. Los Zetas are also characterized as extremely violent, even by cartel standards. So at the end of the day, the DEA suggests that in his prime, El Chapo's reach surpassed the influence and power of Pablo Escobar, although that is certainly debatable. If you want to know more, the story of Joaquin Guzman has been memorialized in multiple TV shows, books, and movies, most recently in Netflix Narcos Mexico, as well as the separate show entitled El Chapo. So that is the episode. I hope you enjoyed the 2023 update on El Chapo. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a comment, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed, smash that subscribe button for me. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up.